This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Now flip, flop, and fly. I don't give a duck. All right, everybody, Flipkart, this is what it's all about, at least for Walmart. And check it out because shares of Walmart, they are slipping today on news that the world's largest retailer will buy a 77% holding in Flipkart. They're spending $16 billion, and that gives it a controlling stake in India's biggest online seller. Here to talk about the deal and some of that disappointment on Wall Street is Scott Mushkin. He's Managing Director of Consumer Research over at Wolf Research. He joins Lisa and myself here uh, from New York. He's on the phone. Hey, Scott, what's up with this? Is it just because it was kind of out there in the news that maybe there's some investor disappointment or did they overpay? $16 billion, that's a lot, but Walmart's got some pretty deep pockets. I mean, it does, and thanks for having me on. It does have, uh, you know, very deep pockets. I think the the question investors have to ask is, you know, is this a good capital decision for, for, for Walmart, for shareholders? And in our opinion, this is, uh, you know, this is not a great decision, uh, great use of capital. Uh, in fact, we resoundingly dislike this this idea. Why? If you look at well, Why? if you look at that's so. If you look at Walmart and you look to say, hey, going back to like some basic business school classes, like what's your competitive advantage? You know, what do you bring to the market? What's your core competency? Um, Walmart's core competency is running super centers in North America. What do you bring to India's e-commerce business? Nothing. Um, they actually Walmart has a very poor track record. Uh, overseas, they they just sold to Asda, and we agreed with that idea, and we thought that was a very good decision because they're hopefully refocus on the U.S. But if you look at Asda, you look they were in Germany for a while, uh, Japan. They've really been challenged overseas, and there's rumors they're going to be get, exiting Brazil. Just, then if you look at e-commerce, they've been losing money in e-commerce I think since 1998, uh, and it's a very small business in relation to what Amazon does. So. I don't think they're bringing anything to the table. I think they're just wasting shareholder money. Scott, just to push back, I mean, haven't they had some success in China? And hasn't sort of the the big box store in China actually been uh, attractive to a lot of people and done really well? I mean, China's been more of a mixed bag. You know, they've they've gotten partnerships there. They they've kind of rejiggered that business. But I wouldn't say it's it's been a win for them. I mean, if you look at you know where they seem to do the best, and it's not all international markets have been bad, but if you look at where they do the best, it's been in North America, it's been Canada, Mexico, and the U.S. Uh, that's where the majority of the money that this company makes comes out of, and in particular the U.S. business, incredibly profitable. So not every place has been a complete loser internationally, but if you look at the preponderance of what they've done or the, the, uh, all of what they've done over time, you as a shareholder would say, I don't know if I want to do this. And in fact, on the call, it was interesting that the CEO said, if you had a three- to five-year view, you would never make this acquisition. Well, three to five years is a long time. Wait a minute. The CEO uh, said if you had a three- yeah. to five-year view, you wouldn't make the... <laughs> you probably wouldn't. It wouldn't make sad. I'm probably paraphrasing what he said. It was actually to my question. But yeah, yeah but that, that's kind of the, you know, what he said. Like, you need a longer view than that. Okay. He's just saying that it's going to pay off longer term. That's the point. Right. I mean, if isn't you only it, had a three- to five-year view, you yeah. wouldn't do it. Isn't yeah. it just all about 
the one billion plus consumers that are in Wal- uh, in uh, India ultimately isn't that what it's about? I mean, I mean, I guess. I mean, I I suppose, but I mean, there's yeah, India. India is definitely you know people think of it as a a good potential growth market in the future, but. There are a lot of markets that are growing that you may not want to get into because you don't have an expertise there. The other problem with going to India um, and doing what they're doing is who are they running right into? The Death Star, Amazon. And Amazon actually brings a lot to the table when you look at India. India's got a lot of the attributes that have made Amazon so successful in the U.S. Bollywood, for instance, like the entertainment industry in India is huge, and Amazon can replicate what they've done here with the Prime program. So that's another reason why I'd well, be very hesitant to go, to right. tell you the truth. So, Scott, uh, if you think this is a, a bad purchase or perhaps not the best purchase that they could make, what should they be spending this money on in order to compete with, in your words, the Death Star? And move the needle, right? Yeah. So, so great question. And so one of the things that I think is interesting about Amazon is that at the end of every press release, they say we're you know, paraphrasing again, we're obsessed with our customers, not our competition. So my first thing I would say to Walmart, stop obsessing about Amazon. Like, you have huge advantages. So that's number one. Number two is... Who's your core customer and what aren't you doing for them right now? What could you be doing for them? And that's why we like the rumor of Walmart buying Humana. Like if you look at where Walmart plays, where their stores are, they tend to over-index to people that require health services and financial services. They're in underbanked areas and, and what we call healthcare deserts. They have these huge stores. They already have 3,000 vision clinics. They have hmm. tons of pharmacies. Adding services is a great place to, to start in the U.S. business. So why Healthcare didn't they, services why and didn't, financial services. Why didn't they do that? If that makes sense to you uh, and maybe some others, why didn't they do that? Uh, you know, I think it's the... I'm, I think it's the obsession with with growth and wanting to grow overseas and also the obsession with Amazon. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, I think... And maybe some almost, you know, Sam Walton started this business. They service middle and lower middle income Americans. In some ways, they seem not as comfortable in that skin anymore. You know, they went and bought Jet. They bought Bonobo. It's like they're they're seemingly not as comfortable in the skin of what Sam Walton founded. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how else to to look at it. They, they, They want to go upscale. They want to do other things. Um, when their core customer has a lot of lot of needs that they could that they could service. Well, as we said, investors not too impressed. Uh, certainly on news of this deal. Hey, Scott, thanks so much, Scott uh, Scott Mushkin. He's managing director of consumer research at Wolf Research on the phone in New York City. Uh, shares of Walmart, Lisa, they're down about two point eight percent at two dollars forty cents, eighty three thirty three a share. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets. Carol Master, Lisa Bromowitz. This is Bloomberg. Take these broken wings. Well, learn to fly again, perhaps, but not to Iran. Uh, Trump is uh, exiting from that Iran pact, and it is said uh, to be halting $40 billion of Boeing and Airbus deals uh, with that nation. For some more details on exactly what this means, Julie Johnson joins us now. She's an aerospace reporter for Bloomberg News, coming to us from our Chicago bureau. Julie, can you just give us a sense of what these deals were that Boeing and Airbus had with Iran? Iran and, and what the sort of fate has uh, has come to at this point. 
Okay, absolutely. And by the way, uh, hats off to whoever came up with the Mr. Mister. <laughs> Paul Brennan, our producer. Absolutely. He's spot on oh, with that I stuff. Love that. <laughs> I love that. Anyway, uh, so I, I think this, this has to be a disappointment for both Boeing and Airbus. I mean, these were historic deals. Um, the Iranian market had been closed um, to, you know, to U.S., exports, you know, um, since the 1970s. I think the last deal that went was, or the last planes that that went into Iran were just before the, the Shah, you know, was was uh, driven out of, of power. Um, so here was, a you know, a, a market that was, was just sort of waiting um, for uh, desperate for new aircraft. Um, the Iranians had ambitions to be sort of another Dubai, you know, a big global air hub. And they were talking about potentially ordering 500 planes, you know, over the next, they were always hazy on the time frame, but it was maybe over the next decade or so. So, so right now it's, it's a big opportunity lost for Boeing and Airbus. Um, for investors, not a shock. I mean, Trump had telegraphed his, his skepticism of this deal. Um, while he was on the, the campaign trail. And so what's interesting is that Boeing and Airbus took sort, sort of very different approaches um, to the sales, and, and Boeing never finalized uh, the 110 planes that were supposed to go to Iran, um, never put them in its order backlog or started cutting metal. Um, Airbus uh, did go ahead and, and book the sales, and delivered um, or hand, via various means three right. jets and eight turboprops. Right. Um, so I mean, it's interesting, right? Um, one of my thoughts here is, I mean, can can Iran go to anybody else? I mean, who else can they go to though to make planes? Ultimately, you know, they really can't. Yeah. Um, China's Comac um, is is trying to get into the market, and, and they have a new jet, the C919, that's years behind schedule. Um, the Chinese carriers have been, you know, unenthusiastic buyers of this airplane, which should yeah. tell you something. They're government-owned. Um, <laughs> if they're not buying Julie, themselves. Yeah. Julia, I'd love to get your take, just to, to broaden out here, because, you know, these, these deals clearly are going to be felt on the bottom line of both of these companies. But there's a broader issue here for the aerospace and the airline industry, and that really comes from oil. And I just want to veer a little bit off topic here. But, I mean, one thing that I'm struck by is a lot of these airlines don't have oil hedges in place the way that they used to and are going to directly feel the hit of higher gas prices on their bottom lines. Can you talk about the sort of one-two punch of possible deals getting destroyed and then in addition having this extra charge? What does this mean for the industry? Well, for the industry, I mean, so far the airlines have been able to, to pass along the, the uptick in oil prices to to um, travelers. And so air travel does not seem to have been hit so far. I mean, demand is really strong this year. So it's a little bit of a wait and see um, for the industry. And again, uh, I mean, for Boeing and Airbus, in a way, if the deal had to fall apart, it's a good thing it happened right now because they are just absolutely flush with orders. So they're able to, you know, sort of 
um, juggle their order books, their their production's not going to take any sort of hit directly. But but yeah, um, they you know would right. they like to have had have these sales? Absolutely. Airbus shares, by the way, um, forgive me, Boeing shares are up 1.7%, up almost 6 bucks to $344.44 a share rate. And we'll have to see, right? There's some time before all of this stuff in terms of uh, the reimposition of sanctions goes into effect. And who knows what could happen between now and either three months or six months from now uh, in terms of uh, whether or not um, – it gets harder or easier, ultimately, for companies to do business in Iran. Julie, thank you so much. Julie Johnson, aerospace reporter at Bloomberg News uh, from our Chicago bureau. But, you know, at Lisa, it's just, you know, we don't know all the implications of this, right? We're going to have to see as it gets um, carried out what it ultimately means. Yeah, yesterday people seemed to think that the uh, rhetoric President Trump was putting out there was harsher than some people had expected. Yet today mm-hmm. you're seeing almost, you know, a sigh of relief in markets. Yeah, exactly, right? So uh, it's hard Go to kind of make sense. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> In conclusion, eh? we'll be talking about it more, that's for sure. Yeah, better things. And that's what a new book I feel like is in search of. It explores using the power of markets and market ideas to bring about changes and more equality, better things. The book, Radical Markets, Uprooting Capitalism and Democracy for a Just Society. I've really been looking forward to this. One of the authors of the book, Glenn Weil, is principal researcher at Microsoft Research New England, based in Boston, in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Uh, Also joining Lisa and myself is Peter Coy, economics editor at Bloomberg Businessweek, who brought this book to our attention. He wrote about it uh, last week for the magazine. Glenn, first of all, kind of just set the scene for us, for those folks maybe not familiar with this book, and they should be. What's the premise? What's the the idea? The basic idea is that markets, if we really make them free and fair, can actually reduce inequality, increase growth, and heal a lot of our political divides, but only if we really reconceptualize them, if we really change some basic institutions in our society, things like one person, one vote, private property, the way that the tech companies are just taking our data without paying for it. It, we, what we really need to do is take the monopolies that have sort of corrupted our markets and smash them and recreate markets that are you know, re-energized and ready for the challenges of the 21st century. Before we get into the details of what this means, Peter, I want to bring you in here. Um, you cover the economics profession. You've been covering yeah. it for a very long yeah. time. Is there enough will to actually make profound changes that, you know, some of these radical proposals actually have a chance at this point? Well, that's obviously the question. Uh, These are cool ideas. And the good thing is that uh, Glenn and Eric have laid out ways in which this could become reality. You know, little experiments here and there, uh, trial runs. And maybe Glenn can talk about that a little bit. Um, There is a way to get from point A to point Z. How do you do it, Glenn? For instance, talk about what you guys suggest or cons- that we should maybe consider when it comes to paying taxes. Yeah, so uh, that, that's a great example of a case where some people in the mainstream economics profession are sort of starting to come our way. So um, we're thinking about the ownership of spectrum. So, you know, the radio spectrum that uh, probably much of this is being delivered to our listeners on is owned by radio stations, television stations. But increasingly, people want to use it for Wi-Fi. They want to use it for 5G. But you know, it's very hard because you need different arrangements of spectrum in order to make that work. 
buying up that spectrum is really complicated because you have to negotiate with a thousand different people. And together with an economist who actually auctioned off the spectrum, Paul Milgram, we proposed the idea of having a tax on the leases on that spectrum that you would pay on a value that you would assess on that spectrum, and anyone could take it from you at that value. So that's a new way of allowing the spectrum to be more easily reallocated across people. And what keeps it kind of honest, if you will, is you've got to sell it at that same You've got to sell it at value. that price, and you've got to pay a tax on that price. So you've got those things offsetting each other. Now, that's a really practical idea. That's something the FCC is thinking about, but it also potentially has broader social implications about how we think about property. Right. You know, another, uh, another idea that you had that's actually being used, and actually I'm seeing more uh, sort of software and, and uh, being developed around this, is getting paid for your data. And that's one of your proposals. Are you seeing that actually gain traction? I mean, I think that one of the most exciting spaces for all of this stuff is what's going on in the blockchain community. So I was just at a conference this past weekend, a big Ethereum uh, mm-hmm. conference, and there, these ideas are on the ground, there's like a dozen startups in the Ethereum, you know, blockchain space, et cetera, right. that are trying to help people negotiate to get paid for their data, just like you were saying, trying to break up some of the power that Facebook and Google have. And at the same time, to manage those communities, they're using ideas like quadratic voting, which is a system that we propose to help protect minorities and to have a better way of voting uh, democratically. I love it, Peter, right? Because we talked about this, this idea of voting when you want or saving up votes so that when there's a candidate or issue that you're really into, you can kind of use multiple votes, in in other words. Peter, come on in on this. Yeah, yeah. So... Quadratic voting sounds pretty nerdy because the only thing people remember about quadratic, it has something to do with the quadratic of formula, negative B <laughs> plus or minus, blah, blah, blah. Don't tune out, please. <laughs> right. So, and yet you, you actually uh, believe that somehow giving, changing the sort of one person, one vote thing could actually make things better. Just give us the, the, the high level version of how that works. Well, I mean, I think all of us know that at some level, just majority rule doesn't work because we know that there's all sorts of minorities within our society and we don't want them to just be totally oppressed by the majorities. But we right. usually leave that it's to really judges. It's money that seems to rule. Yeah. And well, and then there's that, that, that issue as well that, you know, there's plutocracy controlling our democracy. But, you know, we, what we tend to do to protect the rights of minorities is to have, you know, absolute rights and the judges enforce it and so forth. But that sort of undermines democracy. And uh, I think people are pretty upset with that. So we have a different system where every citizen would be given a budget that they could spend on the things that are most important to them, on the issues that are most important to them, so that minorities could win at the ballot box over majorities. You know, one thing that I'm struck by, with all of these ideas, they require a certain amount of education and understanding on the part of the average person. And that seems like a complication to me. Mm -hmm. Am I being too cynical? I'm really glad that you raised that because, um, you know, we have an app. If I I had a screen here, I'd show you. We've got this cool quadratic voting app. And, yes, for people, you know, with a lot of education, the way that they navigate it is they think through all of these trade-offs and so forth. People with less education, when we showed this to them, they play with it, but they end up doing just as well at expressing their preferences. It's mm. just that they get to it more by exploration of the sort of tactile nature well, of the app. No, I'm sorry. I'm, yeah. I'm talking, take another step back. Yeah. I mean, 50% of the Americans voted, if that. I think less than that voted. Yeah. If you look at the primaries, people don't vote. It's sort of, you know, the more optionality people have to do things, the more they don't do it. 
Yeah. So, I mean, I, I do think that uh, having rules that encourage people to vote is is a very beneficial thing. But, you know, the whole idea of the market is to draw on the diverse talents and values of all the people in the public. And, um, you know, that's what democracy and markets are all about. Yeah. So, uh, Glenn, tell us about the uh, idea of sort of taming market power. What's that all about? Well, we think that uh, market power has come to dominate a whole bunch of parts of the economy, whether it's uh, the fact that institutional investors like BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard own an increasing share of the corporate economy and don't really have an interest in seeing those companies compete, whether it's the fact that companies are merging and they're able to drive down the wages to workers, not just the prices to consumers, or whether it's the power of the tech companies uh, that are you know, the conduits for all of our data and can sort of use it and abuse it as they see fit. We have solutions for each of these problems, designs of ways to try to protect consumers, protect workers, protect our democracy from the power of these monopolies. Does it create more transparency? Because I feel part of, I think, what's coming out, too, with all this data uh, are realizing how much these online companies, they, the amount of data that they're collecting, would it create a more transparent market? Just got about 40 seconds. Yeah, I think that one of the most important things, as I was talking about in these Ethereum things, is if you build Build um, intermediaries that can really help look at your data. We don't have time to read all the terms and conditions, but maybe on our behalf, we can create a marketplace of people who are sort of protecting our data for us, reading those terms and conditions for us, and trying to expose uh, what we're missing uh, for us. What I love is just some different ideas, right? Because the existing ideas to solve the injustices or inequalities aren't working. <laughs> thank you very much. Yeah. They're not working. Um, a must read. Glenn, thank you so much. Thank you. Good luck with the book. Glenn Weil, Principal Researcher, Microsoft Research New England, based in Boston, in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. And of course, thanks to Peter Coy, Economics Editor, Bloomberg Business Week. I'm always learning from Peter. He's joining us in our New York studio. Lisa Bromwitz, Carol Masser, and this is Bloomberg Radio. Yes, George Jetson, sponsored by Uber. Uber is uh, has a flying car dream, and they are unveiling it. And Eric Newcomer is going to join us now and tell us about uh, why we're going to be flying around in our little Uber cars. Eric Newcomer, startup reporter for Bloomberg News. So what is this Los Angeles conference that Uber is holding? And are we really going to be flying around in cars? <laughs> it's, it's absurd that we're talking about it. But yes. It's, um, pretty amazing event. So this is Uber's second Elevate conference. And basically the idea is to bring together, you know, people who work in aviation. You know, they now have five companies that are hard at work trying to build these flying cars, battery companies, you know, software, sort of, you know, people making rotors. So this is really an effort to bring everyone together. And there are, you know, demonstrations. I mean, there are models, but there's certainly, I want to be very clear, you know, no flying car here today. So this is how can we get there? But, uh, you know, it doesn't exist yet. Carol, I love what? that. I want to be really clear. There's no flying car right here. <laughs> right. Because, you know, Eric, uh, we kind of heard that there might be. That's the life be. we're living right now. <laughs> Talk about flying cars. Well, yeah. this is what's interesting, right? Because Uber doesn't plan to actually manufacture flying cars, correct? Is it just about kind of pooling right. the people and folks and companies that will be involved in it ultimately? Right. So they're, they're not building it. You know, it's similar to you know, ride sharing today where they want to sort of operate the network, get you the flying car, but somebody else is manufacturing it. Listen, we're having some fun with this, but I mean, let's, let's be fair. I mean, how realistic is this? I mean, in terms of the efforts, Uber and others that are working on this idea. 
Oh, I mean, it feels very serious here. I mean, companies, I mean, Boeing bought this company, Aurora, that's one of Uber's partners. So there are real players who are investing. Uber wants, you know, pilots by 2020 and then commercial uh, versions of this in 2023. So while, you know, we're looking at models and VR demos today, uh, the people here are working aggressively to build something uh, in the next five years. So I'm trying to wrap my head around. Uh, so Uber basically wants to fly people around. Would it be the same kind of situation as uh, is currently seen with the ride sharing service? Is that the idea? Right. So, I mean, that's why the coordination is so key here, because they want to build, you know, specific sort of helipad sort of uh, locations on top of parking garages. So we've seen all sorts of mock-ups of how those might look. So you go to one of those. You know, you call, you, you get in a vehicle with like up to four passengers, four passengers and a pilot. It takes you, you know, across the city and you get out and it's this shared service that's shuttling people around, you know, so like Uber today. Isn't this just called a private plane? <laughs> right. But the idea is a sort of much cheaper electric vehicle. I mean, the vehicles themselves, I think what's important to understand is that what is changing everything right now is battery technology. These are meant to be electric vehicles that are super lightweight, look almost like drones. They have a combination sort of fixed wing rotor design. But the idea is that they can sort of work short distances, be pretty lightweight because of the battery and recharge um, constantly. All right. But Eric, Lisa brings up a good point, right? Because are we ever going to have some kind of craft flying around that doesn't at least have one pilot in there? Yeah, I mean, the autonomous is a key part of this. We saw a sort of mini debate on stage where Aurora, the Boeing company I was talking about before, you know, their CEO said, you know, you need autonomous for this to make business sense because if you have four passengers and a pilot, you know, the labor costs just make it sort of very expensive to operate. And there is going to be autonomous sort of either way, but um, – I think Uber wants the pilot to be involved, but certainly coordinating, taking off and landing and all of that yeah. is going to involve autonomous technology. Yeah, it also uh, will involve a lot of air traffic control. Did anyone talk about that, considering the fact that we already have a sort of interesting <laughs> situation from the FAA? No, I mean, that's the type of conference we're at. They were laughing at the air traffic uh discussion you know normally they're on the second day they made it to the first day today so there's you know a serious discussion there the faa uh acting administrator was here really focused on safety and made it clear that you know they didn't want these vehicles to be any less safe than airplanes which of course have a much higher safety standard than we have for automobiles so that was an interesting discussion but yeah, yeah. everybody's Sort of here talking about how to make it happen. Yeah, all I can think of is Alfred Hitchcock and the birds, right? That just purr, like that fly. Well, <laughs> like all, they're all, all over the place. All I can think about is drones. That I've <laughs> I have personally seen drone crashes. So I yeah. don't know. It's realistic. Hey, listen, just got about forty seconds left here. There's another story that you you know you just talked to about how Uber's uh, in a research pact with NASA. Again, we're having fun, but this is serious stuff. People are working on this. Right. So yeah, the Na- NASA. And they have another one uh, on a separate issue with the U.S. Army. The NASA sort of work is to figure out, okay, we have airports. We have all this airspace we have to monitor. How do we actually sort of make that work in a city? So they're just going to study, you know, I think it's the Dallas-Fort Worth area, 
exactly how that would look, uh, working together, sharing data. All I know is, though, wouldn't it be great, like in rush hour here in New York City and Somehow a drone just came and picked you up, Lisa, and got you but, downtown in But then it's going to be rush hour in the sky. I don't know. All right. Then we'll go back to good old cabs or something like All that. All right. I don't fine. Know. I'm being a Debbie Downer. I'm sorry. I'm Debbie sorry. Debbie Downer. <laughs> Eric Newcomer, never Debbie Downer. He's startup reporter at Bloomberg News from the Uber Elevate Conference, Elevate Conference in Los Angeles. This is Bloomberg. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. The drive to the close. That punk to music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is the time for the drive to the close. David McKnight is president of the David McKnight and Company, based in Wisconsin, in our Bloomberg 1130 studio on this uh, Wednesday afternoon. David, nice to have you here with Lisa and myself. Thanks for having me. Hey, listen, before we get going into uh, kind of uh, your thoughts on the markets and, and investing, you're based in Wisconsin, but you are getting ready to, or you are based now or soon to be based in Puerto Rico. Right. So we'll be moving to Puerto Rico uh, mid-July. Mid-July. Right. Um, you know, it's interesting. Um, why are you doing that? Well, good question. So there's uh, Puerto Rico since about 2011 has had something called Act 20 and Act 22. And uh, that's a program that incentivizes U.S. Uh, businesses, small businesses, to relocate to Puerto Rico uh, in a, an attempt to really sort of stimulate the economy. And basically what they do is they say as long as you're there for six months and one day out of the year and you can stay for three years, you, uh, you pay no federal tax, you pay no state tax, you pay flat, effective 4% tax rate on all of the income that flows to you in Puerto Rico. So uh, if you are accustomed to paying $300,000 of tax, you now pay about 30000 So it basically knocks a zero off your tax bill. Any difference? Just you. The rest of the people who work at the firm are going to stay back. In Wisconsin. Yeah, so I, I've got six employees. They'll all stay. Uh, they'll all stay in the United States. And since I'm the owner of the company, the income flows to me in Puerto Rico. I'm wondering, you know, right now after the hurricane and after several power outages, you know, what's sort of the the drawback then for you going there? Yeah, so the drawback is the the power has not been fully resolved, and uh, you know. It's interesting, but the other day a guy in a backhoe, you know, knocked out a, a cable and poof, the, the power to the entire island went out. And then before that, a, a tree knocked out the power to the to the enti- you know the entire island. And so, uh, it's not like living in the United States. There's uh, increased crime. There's um, you know, if you're in a public school, you got to bring your own toilet paper. So there's those types of things. Um, so it, the, another drawback is if you want to have a good quality of education in Puerto Rico, you got to do a private school, and that's going to cost you $1,000 per kid per month. So there's some different things that you have to weigh against it. What, what are your thoughts, though, in the aftermath of those, those hurricanes and the opportunity that Puerto Rico has to kind of rebuild itself? Are they taking advantage of it? Are you seeing any signs of that? And do, and do it in a better way to create an economy that's viable and stops people from leaving because there are no opportunities there. Right. And um, Puerto Rico's long had sort of this colonial economy where they're dependent on, uh, you know, a federal government. And there's been a lot of corruption. A lot of people have 
you know, it's been hemorrhaging and, and you know, inhabitants for the last 10 years or so. People are retiring to the mainland. So it's, uh, it's a tough economy, and um, they're not doing a great job of restoring the electrical grid. The electrical grid is a patch upon a patch upon a patch. Elon Musk would have loved to have come in and put something permanent in there that was sustainable. So they still have a fair amount of long-term challenges that they're going to be confronted with. Um, and my hope is that, you know, by moving to Puerto Rico, we can hire some Puerto Rican employees and really make a difference. All right. Well, um, you know, since we are heading toward the close of the day, we would love to get your thoughts on uh, on market allocation. And I'm just wondering, you know, uh, do you think that in general people have been overly pessimistic and you're seeing that reflected today in the fact that, that shares are increasing despite the uh, macroeconomic tensions uh, politically in the backdrop? Well, so the thing that troubles me, it's a great question. The thing that troubles me is, okay, so, so a lot of the, you know, we're at the end of this nine-year uh, bull market and is it sustainable, right? Is it sustainable? A lot of this is driven by the optimism from from businesses with the tax cuts and what uh, the sort of the optimism that uh, the Trump has brought in. But what a lot of our clients are worried about is: Are we going to sustain a thirty percent or forty percent correction in the next two or three years? And if so, what can they do to protect themselves? And so, um, thirty to forty percent correction. Yeah, that's a that's that's well. Big. Think about yeah. Think about the last time we've had a nine-year bull market. It hasn't yeah. happened very. I mean, for every ten years, we we can expect a two, two or three down years in any ten-year segment. So and you're saying gone, it's kind of pent up. It's pent up. I think yeah. we're due for a major correction, and a lot of our clients are trying to figure out. Okay, when that happens, how do we insulate ourselves against that? If I can just follow, is it because of the valuations that you see that don't make sense, or is it that you look? I don't know, one, two, three years down the road, and you don't think the economic and fundamental backdrop is going to even support the existing valuations. Yeah, I just don't. I, I think that you know the price-to-earning ratios, the valuations, aren't sustaining this type of prolonged um, and persistent uh, bull markets. You know, one thing that confuses me is I do hear a lot of pessimism and people saying, well, you know, this credit cycle is getting long in the tooth, but then everyone says we don't really see a recession coming anytime soon. Uh, there isn't any sign of corporate distress. Balance sheets look pretty good. So isn't it still game on? Well, you know, I think one way of looking at it is there's still a lot of optimism that uh, spills over from the Trump tax cuts. And the Trump tax cuts, at least from for, for individuals, the, the company Trump, Trump, uh, Trump tax cuts are permanent. But for individuals, those expire in 2026. So I think for it's still game on for another eight years – uh, in terms of indiv- individual tax rates, and, the, and that certainly drives a lot of optimism. So I, I, I like to think that what you're saying is, is true. I just, if history serves as a model, we've just never seen this type of prolonged bull market. And uh, to see it go for another five years without some sort of a correction would be to, uh, to go against history. We haven't been here before, right? We don't exactly know what the playbook is. Hey, 30 seconds left here. What's your advice to investors then? Uh, my advice to investors is to play the long game. I'm a big long game guy, and um, there's a lot of uh, ebbs and flows in the short term, but the long game is, I believe, where it's at. So make sure you've got um, investing objectives. Yeah. You are uh, sticking to your your core uh, core objectives and sticking out for long term. And be ready for volatility. That's right. Or more volatility. Um, great to get some time. Thank you. You're for coming in. David Thanks McKnight. For- President of David McKnight and Company, based in Wisconsin, based in Puerto Rico, in our Bloomberg 1130 studio on this Wednesday. The close coming your way in just a moment. 
Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. 